returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand you may be seated. well as we turn the calendar into the month of June uh, with the year racing along we have looked at many verses over this year that we have been seeking to commit to our memory and as we come to the first Sunday of June we have another one before us here from Psalm chapter 94 and verse 19 that the context of Psalm 94 is that the psalmist looks around and sees all around him the what seems to be the prevailing of wickedness that everywhere the psalmist looks it seems as though wickedness is winning the day Uh, that the wicked go unpunished and even seem to flourish in the midst of their wickedness and there you get the sense as you read through psalm 94 that the psalmist is just weighted down he's burdened by all of this kind of wickedness around him and you almost get the sense that he just maybe exhales for a moment uh, and just maybe perplexed and you know God how much longer are you going to do nothing while the wicked seemingly prevail and toward the end of the psalm the psalmist says this verse psalm 94 and verse 19 and over the course of the month of june we'll learn this together hopefully commit this to memory together draw out various aspects of this verse to meditate on but church family would you join me this morning in reciting this verse corporately together with one another when the cares of my heart are many your consolations cheer my soul psalm 94 19 when the cares of my heart are many one of the things that i've grown to love and appreciate so much about the lord as we see it displayed in his word is that god understands that in the course of our days in all that we deal with in all that we encounter there are going to be many at least sometimes it seems that way many cares burdens anxieties and fears that may settle upon our hearts all throughout scripture we see the people of god often perplexed and often finding themselves maybe in the very valley of the shadow of death Yet over and over and over again, what we also find is that in that, God is calling His people, come to Me in those cares. Bring those cares to Me. Do not deal with those by yourself. It is as though God is saying to us, hey, you're not equipped for this. And so then, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, We do what with our cares? We cast them upon the Lord knowing that He cares for us. God has provided a way when the cares of our heart are many. And maybe that's where you are this morning. 
Maybe there are a thousand things going on with you and you've told no one. You're burdened by them. You're perplexed by them. You don't know how you got here and you don't know how to get out. Beloved, when the cares of your heart are many, go to the Lord. Turn to Him. He loves you. The presence of difficulty and cares in your life does not mean the absence of God. And let, as you turn to Him, His many consolations cheer and delight your soul. May that prayer of the psalmist be ours this morning. Let's pray together. Father, as we have been reminded of truth through song, by the reading of Your Word, and now in the memorization, the beginning of the memorization of this one verse. God, what a beautiful reminder to us this morning. God, Your people are often beset on every side. Perplexed. Sometimes gripped and paralyzed by fear and anxiety. But God, You so graciously provide instruction in Your Word about what we do in those moments. God, You call us to prayer. You call us to take those cares to You. God, never once do You ask us to bear these burdens of our own accord, in our own strength, according to our own wisdom. But God, You beckon us to You. You promise us in Your Word, O God, that when we pray, when we cast our cares before You, When we pray, God, there is a promise that Your peace, it comes to us and it guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. God, You tell us that even though the cares of our heart might be many, God, Your consolations are better. They are infinite. They are eternal. God, You console us by the Spirit in us. You console us by the reminder of the Gospel and that we are eternally safe and secure with You. God, You remind us that the troubles, though they might be severe, they are temporary. They are not forever. God, You comfort us. You console us. God, with a reminder that one day, one day in glory, we will have no more cares of soul. No more fears. No more anxieties. God, until that day, oh God, would You take our faces, put them in Your hands, set our eyes, God, upon You and Your many gracious consolations. God, encourage the one, maybe it's several in the room. They're burdened. They're weighed down. Maybe they've told no one. God, help them in this moment to tell You. To bring those before You. God, would You be the comforter by Your Spirit's work in them? Comfort them, O God. 
Father, as we look to the study now of Your Word, do in us what You will. Father, do in us what we cannot do ourselves. God, make us better equipped to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, to have burdens and passions for Your glory to be made known in all the earth. And it's through Christ our Lord that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Church, would you take God's Word and join me in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 is the text before us this morning. Over these last several weeks, in verses 1 to 12, we have been studying together in the Beatitudes. We have seen together these eight identifying marks of those who are truly born again, those who are truly Christ's disciples. Not only are these eight characteristics, not only are they markers of the Christian's life, but they are also characteristics that are going to enable you, church, to go out into the world, to live out the gospel, and to make a noticeable difference for the sake of of Christ's kingdom. As we live out the realities of these beatitudes before our neighbors, before our co-workers, before our family members, before all the watching world, as we live out these things in very practical ways, what's going to happen by God's grace through you is that the watching world, that lost people, they will see the gospel in action and by grace, They will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to give glory to God. Church, never forget, never forget that the call to Christ, that to be a Christian, what that means is that God intends to use His people to make a tangible, noticeable difference in the world in which we live so noticeable, in fact, that the text before us this morning calls you, church, salt, and it calls you light. The Christian life is not something that we exhibit only within the walls of this building. And the Christian life is most certainly not this part that we play, this costume that we wear on Sundays that we then take off Monday through Saturday. Those who have been saved by God's bountiful grace in Christ, what will become ever increasingly true about us is that we will have deep longings to live out this glorious gospel before the watching world. To live out the gospel, to love our neighbors well so that others would be saved and that God would be glorified. Some of you are familiar with uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and its opening question What is the chief end of man? 
Why does man exist? Why are we here? What is our purpose? And the answer to that question is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why do we exist? Why is there breath in my lungs? Why am I saved? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And church, as we'll see in the text this morning, the call of Christ on our lives is to help the watching world get to a place where they themselves glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Church, you will go a long way to helping fulfill that great call on your life when you live out the gospel as salt and light. Look at the text with me this morning. Verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As we see in this text before us this morning, there are three particular influences that Christians are to have on the world around them. Three influences that the church, that Christians are to have on the world around them. And the first one is in verse 13. We are to have, number one, a preserving influence upon the world around us. A preserving type of influence. Back to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In the text, verses 13 to 16, Jesus is going to use a couple of metaphors here to describe the inhabitants of his kingdom, salt and light. Let me just make a couple of broad observations here before we dive in. Number one, notice that both of these, in verse 13 and in verse 14, it begins with this verb, you are. This is who you are. These are these things that Jesus is saying in the text. These are not options for the child of God. If you are a Christian, this is what Christ has called you to. And we do not get the option to say, hey, you know what? Like, I want the grace to get me out of hell and to save me from my sin, but I don't actually really want to live for Jesus in any real noticeable, tangible way. I kind of really just want to go about my life and do my own thing, and I'll see the rest of you guys when we all get to heaven. That's not how this works. You are, as disciples of Christ, as those who have been saved by God's grace, we don't have to wonder what we are supposed to be. It is before us clearly in the text. God has saved us by His grace. 
He has created us by His sovereign and powerful hand. He may then do with us whatever He wants to do with us. He may use us and direct us in whatever fashion He desires. And so you are salt. You are light. Maybe just a second broad observation here. Thinking about salt and, and light. These are just indispensable commodities. As we'll see in verse 13, throughout history, salt has proven to be this extremely important, necessary commodity. We, we know that without light, we cannot function or exist. You are these indispensable commodities in the world, placed here strategically by Christ to make a noticeable, tangible difference in the lives of those with whom you interact. So look at the first one here, verse 13. You are salt. The salt of the earth. Why does Jesus use salt as a metaphor for the Christian life and how He desires us to live? In our day, we primarily know salt as a seasoning. Somebody didn't get the job done right in the kitchen, right? And so we got to come back and we got to add a little more salt to get a little more flavor out of this thing. However, while that's how we predominantly know salt, throughout most of history and in most places around the world, seasoning, while it has been a use of salt, has not been its greatest use. In the ancient world, salt was much more than just a flavoring on your meal. Oftentimes, because salt was such a precious commodity, it's been said that soldiers would often be paid sometimes with salt, just as because of its precious value. And in fact, it's likely from that practice that the saying, he's not or he is worth his salt, comes from such a practice. But more than this, though, and maybe most importantly about the use of salt throughout most of human history, salt was a precious commodity because it has a preserving effect to it. Long before the days of electricity, refrigerators and freezers, and the ability to easily preserve meats, other, other foods, salt was used as this preserving element. You pack the meats, other types of food, in salt, and they would keep for actually quite some time. It would most definitely slow the spoiling process. And it's most likely because of that great use of salt, it's most likely that this is the aspect to which Jesus refers in verse 13. You, my people, are the salt of the earth. You are this indispensable commodity that preserves and has a preserving influence on the world around us. Church, as a general rule, as a general rule, where robust, where genuine, where faithful Christian living 
happens, there is a preserving influence that comes along with it. Where Christians live out the Beatitudes, where the church loves their neighbor, in general, evil is helped to be kept at bay. Or at the very least, its consuming influence is slowed. Where evil abounds and depravity runs amok, there is usually very little gospel influence. However, where Christians in clear, robust, genuine, faithful ways, where they live out the Beatitudes, where they are humble, where they are gentle, where they are merciful, where Christians make peace in the midst of conflict, where they patiently endure the sufferings, guess what so often is also true? That there is a preserving influence that happens. And listen, I understand that you living out the Beatitudes in your little sphere of influence, I understand that that probably will not make a drastic difference to all 8 billion people that live on the planet. But you want me to tell you where it does make a difference? It makes a difference in your family. And it makes a difference in your relationship with your neighbor across the street. And it makes a drastic difference with your coworker. It leaves a positive influence and preserving effect as you live out the gospel it leaves a preserving effect in its wake that affects your neighbor and those that you have the closest relationships with this is what god's intent for us is i often wonder i often wonder if there was robust genuine gospel living in all churches, on every corner, all over the world, how much difference would that really make? Beloved, I think it would be profound. I think it would be profound. May God give us the grace. May God give us the ability to be salt like this in such a way, to live out the things in verses 1-12 to in such particular ways that it makes a preserving difference and has a preserving influence on those around you. Do you want your neighbor to love Jesus? Do you wish your co-worker didn't live and act that way? Begin to live out the Gospel in front of them in clear, profound ways. Engage them. Loving them. Caring for them. Seeking to know them. And just watch, saints. Just watch what your preserving influence might do upon them. Look in the second half of verse 13. There's a bit of a warning that comes in the second half of verse 13. If the salt has become tasteless, How can it be made salty again? Now, the obvious answer to that question is, if salt loses its saltiness, you can't make it salty again. Which also then brings up another question, can salt actually lose its saltiness? 
And the answer to that question is that no, when it comes to pure salt, that sodium chloride is a stable compound and it cannot actually lose its saltiness. So then what is Jesus talking about here? If the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty again? The salt of Jesus' day, much of this region of the world, is actually not a pure salt. It's mixed with sediment and it's mixed with another mineral called gypsum. And because of the the various minerals that are all kind of mixed into that salt together, it becomes impure. And it becomes an unstable type of compound. And over time, it will in fact lose its saltiness. It will in fact lose the characteristics and the effects of salt. And so then when that happens, at the end of verse 13, that's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. There's absolutely no value to it when it loses its saltiness and they would just throw it out on the footpaths to be trampled underfoot by men. How does this correlate to our lives? What's the connection here? Jesus is not teaching that you can lose your salvation, that you can at one point be salty and then lose your saltiness and now you're just cast out, trampled underfoot by men. However, he is teaching this, that if too much worldliness, if too much sin mixes in with our lives, we lose not our salvation to the praise of his glory and grace, but we will begin to lose our effectiveness. We will begin to lose our influence. Salt is only effective if it's salty. Christians are only effective if they are holy. We must, beloved. There's a call coming out of verse 13. In the midst of what we're called to be and do, we must also hear the warning here that helps us to guard against the influx and the mixture of sin and worldliness in our lives. Because when sin and worldliness mix in with our lives, we begin to look, act, talk, and think like the rest of the world. And when that happens, we lose the ability to have this preserving influence. And nowhere in Scripture is this more clearly illustrated than in Genesis 19. Would you join me there? I want us to see what it looks like when sin and worldliness mix into the heart of the child of God. And I want us to see the loss of preserving influence. And that this would be a warning that we would collectively heed together. Abram and Lot, you recall, they separate because their herds and their people have grown to be too many. Lot lifts up his eyes and he, he moves toward Sodom. By the time the story picks back up, in Genesis 18 and 19, Lot has moved not just in the direction of Sodom, but he has moved into the city of Sodom. He sits as a respected figure in the city gate. But what does the Lord intend upon Sodom? 
The Lord intends absolute destruction. Abraham pleads with him. If we can find 50, 40, 35, 30, if we can just find 10 righteous people here, God, will you spare it? And it, that, that number cannot be found. And then the story shifts to Lot. And look down to verses 12 and 14. After some other things that have happened at the beginning of this chapter that just show us how Lot has been mixed with sin and worldliness. The two men that have come to him in verse 12, the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Hey Lot, get your people out of here. We're about to destroy this place. Verse 14. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up! Get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Oh, Lot. Man, that's, that's great. That's a good one. I mean, I've heard a lot of good ones, Lot, but you're, you're a, you're a, that's good. That's good. No, we're not going anywhere, Lot. You're just kidding. And when you keep reading, what in fact happens? Destruction comes. Because of Lot's life that has been mixed with sin and worldliness, he has lost his preserving influence. His family, his friends, they die. Why? Because when it came time to give the warning, Lot, you're joking, man. They don't, they don't take him seriously in that. He has lost his saltiness. And tragically, has lost a preserving influence. Saints, do you see how important it is to maintain lives that are holy before the Lord? That while you will not live these things out perfectly, the overall trajectory of your life is to live out the, these beatitudes, the call of the Gospel, and to be a preserving influence. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe that one reason why the, church of the God, why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Beloved, may it not be. May it not be that the world would have so much influence over the church that we would have so very little influence over the world. Secondly, Secondly, verses 14 and 15, the second influence that Christians are to have on the world is an illuminating influence. An illuminating influence. Verse 14, you are, there it is again, you are. This is who you are. This is what I've called and saved you, made you to be. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Here's your second metaphor. Jesus is describing what his people are to be like. We are to be an illuminating influence on the world around us. Paul will later pick up this metaphor in Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15, when he says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. I also want you to notice this in verse 14. There is a beautiful moment here where Jesus, once again, is fully identifying with His people and when He calls His people to fully identify with them, with Him. He says in verse 14, you are what? You are the light of the world. Later, in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus will say about himself, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world whom Isaiah 42.6 said would be a light to the nations. As the light of the world indwells the hearts of His people, they in turn with Christ become what? The light of the world. So then, it is impossible to be a darkened Christian. It is then impossible to say, I'm in Christ, yet you live in darkness. It is impossible then to say, I am of the light of the world, but then not have an illuminating influence on the world around you. Those things don't go together. They don't make sense. As Christ shines, His people shine. As Christ illuminates, His people illuminate. As Christ drives back the darkness, His people drive back the darkness. As Christ is the light that cannot be ignored, His people are the city on the hill that cannot be hidden. As it is with Christ, so it is with us. Church, we cannot taste the illuminating grace of Christ and then not desire to be light in the darkness. To know God's saving grace in Christ. It is to know the darkness from which He pulled us. From which He saved us. And that means then, that in light of that, we will desire to be an illuminating influence on the world around us. Ephesians 5.8 Remember this, saints. You were formerly darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk children of light illuminate the darkness around you and i would just pause to say this most importantly if you're here this morning and you don't know christ scripture says that you are in darkness because sin is darkness you're groping about trying to find your way out you try different things and new efforts and nothing seems to work out that's because you have not yet come to christ the light of the world. You must come to Him to be saved out of that darkness and brought into a marvelous 
light. Look in verse 15. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. You get this, church. It'd be folly. It'd be ridiculous to say, hey, it's dark in here. Let's light a lamp. And then to take that lamp, take that light, and put it under a basket to hide and diminish the light. This is Jesus' whole point in verse 15. You are the light of the world. We don't put lights under baskets. We put them where? We put them on lampstands so that they give light to everybody that's in the house. Church, it should be abundantly clear in verses 13 to 16 that what Jesus intends for us is to clearly and boldly live out the gospel in our daily lives as an illuminating influence on the darkness around us. Do you wish the darkness wasn't so dark? I do. I think we all feel that. In Psalm 94, that's what the psalmist is getting at. Why is the darkness so dark? Why does wickedness prevail? How do we deal with this? How do we think about this? Christian, you are the light of the world. Light up the darkness. Live out the Gospel. The very purpose of light is to illuminate the darkness and drive it away. As one commentator said, what a lamp is to a house, the follower of Christ should be to the world. And so we don't hide our Christianity under a basket. We're not ashamed of Christ. We don't seek to cover up the light simply because the world loves darkness more than lights. Beloved, also again, don't let sin and worldliness diminish your light. You know how you go buy a new car, you drive it off the lot, and those headlights, man, they're like crystal clear, right? Shine so brightly. Give it about 10 years, and then go look at those headlights again. They're dingy. There's a film over, right? Um, there's all these YouTube videos about how to get rid of it. None of those actually really work, I don't think. But this haze sets in over those headlights. And 10 years later, They're not as bright as they were the day you drove it off the lot. That's what the effect of sin does upon us. It diminishes the lights within us. So beloved, be those who are pushing back the sin and darkness in your own soul so that you might live as lights in the world. And then finally, verse 16 There's a third influence that we're to have, and it's to be a God-glorifying influence. We're a preserving influence and illuminating influence. And lastly, in verse 16, a God-glorifying influence. So, you're the light of the world, verse 14. Cities set up on a hill can't be hidden. Verse 15, nobody lights a lamp, puts it under a basket, they put it on the lampstand, it gives light to everybody in the house. Verse 16, let your light do what? Let it shine before men. So that they, those men, those lost people, the world around you might see your good works. They might see you living out the gospel. They might see the beatitudes in motion. And the end of verse 16 is what? That they would glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
Just break that verse 16 down into those three parts. Let your light shine before men. In the same way that the city can't be hidden, no one puts a lamp under a basket. Let your light shine. Light is only good if it's uncovered and pierces the darkness. The light of the Gospel is great for us to celebrate in here, but it makes no difference to the lost person out there if we don't take the light out from under this basket, if you will, and take it out into the world to let it shine. Let it shine. Second part of verse 16 is so that they may see your good works. Live out the Gospel. Obey God's Word. Honor Christ with your life. Live out the Beatitudes so that the world will see your good works. There is a very public element to Christianity. Your relationship with Jesus is personal, but it is not private. There is very much a public nature to this. And what the call of God upon our lives is, is to go out into the world and let people see the outworking of the Gospel in your life. So that, what's the great end of verse 16? That they may see your good works and then look right past you. To see your good works and then look right through you. To see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How do you best help people to achieve that great end? Let your light shine before men. Live out the Gospel before them. The great end of letting your light shine before men is not that you would be seen. Not that platforms and prominence would be built. But the great end is for the glory of God. That God would be seen as beautiful. That God would be seen as worthy. That your lost family members, neighbors, co-workers, every lost person that you have interaction with, that they may see the glory of God. Make it your great aim to put into practice Psalm 115, verse 1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Never forget that your light is a reflective light. It's not you just shining by yourself. You are the moon that reflects the light of the sun, right? As Christ lives and shines in you, that reflects out into a world. They see it and they glorify God in their lives. Church, is your life being spent to reflect the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, listen to this. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Are we shining that light? Living out the Gospel in very practical, tangible ways. Living it out so that others see the light of Christ and that they turn by faith to God and give glory 
to him. The faithful pastor G. Campbell Morgan said this, Jesus, looking out over the multitudes of his day, saw the corruption, the disintegration of life at every point, its breakup, its spoilation. And because of his love of the multitudes, he knew the thing that they needed most was salt in order that the corruption should be arrested. He saw them also wrapped in gloom, sitting in darkness, groping amidst the mist and fogs. He knew that they needed, above everything else, light. Look around, saints. Look around. Do you see the devastating, spoiling effect of sin? Sure you do. How? How do we preserve it? By being the salt of the earth. Do you see the people groping in darkness? How do we show them the way? By the light, the glory of God, and the face of Christ. Beloved, if we don't do it, it's not going to get done. Jesus says to no one else but His people, you are salt, you are light. If we wait on the world to do it, it'll never get done. This is our task. It's come to us. For the glory of God and the advancement of His kingdom. Let's be these things together, dear saints. Let's pray. God, there is still much to consider regarding what it is to be salt and light. God, there is much application here. God, if we need in our hearts to confess sin that has weakened our effect and influence, we need to confess sin that has diminished the brilliance of the Gospel shining forth from us, then God, show us where that is, give us the grace to do that. God, may we commit ourselves fresh and new, God, to this great calling that you've placed on our lives. Not merely to be Christians on Sunday, not merely just to take in the excellencies of the Gospel, but God, to take them in and then to take them out into a world that is dying in their darkness. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Sinful man takes pride in that which grieves your heart. Oh God, show us what we must do in the face of such sinful corruption and darkness. 
God, give us courage. Help us to not be ashamed. God, help us to stand boldly on what is true because eternity is at stake. It matters what gets preached in our pulpits. It matters how we live. It matters what we do in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. So God, help us. We know you will. We thank you for that promise. Thank you that we don't walk this alone. God, you are with us. We ask and pray all these things in Christ's great name. Amen. Amen.